Dodge Media Productions is a proud sponsor of Expose Hope, a 501c3 organization dedicated to showing the members of the adult entertainment industry that regardless of where they are at, they are cared for. Expose Hope provides gifts, resources, and time to individuals without judgment. Dodge Media Productions is committed to helping Expose Hope to reach their goals of ending trafficking. You can support their efforts by donating today. Follow the link in the show notes. You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 140, and we are talking about the 1983 film Trading Places. This was directed by John Landis, who also brought us the 1978 Animal House, woo woo, Eugene Pride, and uh, 1980s Blues Brothers and 1983's Twilight Zone. We also talked about John Landis in June or July when we when we had Dustin Morrow on and he was talking about his yuppie films he directed one of those that is slipping my mind right now john landis did not dustin yes john landis right. did yes <laughs> but dustin talked to us about it correct yes okay it stars eddie murphy dan Aykroyd, jamie lee curtis ralph bellamy and don amici the dp was robert painter who did 1980s superman 2 and 1983's superman 3 and 1986's little shop of horrors he was busy in the 80s he was the writer for this film is timothy harris who did one of your i don't know if this is a favorite of yours but falling down in 1993 oh yeah would you call it a favorite or no no but it is certainly a good film and a noteworthy film Yes. And actually, there were, pardon me, there were two writers, Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod, and they both were part of Falling Down in 93. The previous writer, Timothy, was also in, uh, wrote 2009's Astro Boy, and Herschel wrote 1988's My Stepmother is an Alien. Uh, Gina Davis. Yes. And Goldblum? I believe so. Yes. Uh, The synopsis for this film is a snobbish investor and a Wiley Street con artist find their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires. Were they they were brothers? They were brothers. Yeah. The Duke brothers. Yeah. Okay, I have three taglines for you to choose from. The first one is they're not just getting rich. They're getting even. Okay, okay. So speaking of the investor and con artist. Right. Some very funny business. Mm, Not so much. Okay. (laughs) Take two complete strangers, make one of them rich and the other one poor. Just watch the fun while they're trading places. From a marketing perspective, that definitely... So I think it's a little too wordy. I mean, go go the, fir- the first one, I think, is probably your best bet there. Yeah. They're not just getting rich. They're getting even. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Murphy was only 21 years old when he made this movie, which, when you think about it, is so young. That is insanely young. Right? I mean, I, when I saw this, I was much younger than him. I was like, what, 12? So, to me, he just seemed like a grown-up. But right. 21 is just, that's a baby. 
Okay, so this film was made when? 83. Let me make sure. But so he was yeah, born 83. in 62. So that means that, was was he like 24 for Delirious? Is that right? I, I would have to look up Delirious. But again, yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying, I, I, at that era, I would have thought he was in his 30s. In his 30s, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Of course, we, we, we didn't see him in person, so we didn't know. He's, he's a, a fellow of shorter stature and smaller build. I think he's average height. Well, oh, I hope so. Because in this movie, he doesn't. Maybe they cast a lot of big burly guys to stand next to him. Okay. Ralph Bellamy, as we talked about very early in when we started the podcast. Oh, Bellamy. Became known. Um, he was the... You, you should explain this because you know it better. Yeah. The, the Bellamy is a shorthand for the guy in the romantic comedy who has nothing wrong with him. He's just not right for Meg Ryan. Right. Right. The lead. Correct. So, um, he, you like him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not an ass or anything. He's just not right for her. And so you kind of feel for the guy because he doesn't belong with the girl. Yeah. So I believe in his, it was his first movie that he got, that he portrayed the role that gave that nickname of mm-hmm. a Bellamy. Right. I, and I think he maybe played it more than once, is, is why uh, Billy Murnett coined the phrase. Right. I think. And this was his last film. Oh, bookend. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And we've talked about it. I will say, um, also, I think his character, Bellamy's character, is Randolph, the older brother. Yes, it is. And I, I think he had the better agent because that character is more redeemable. Mortimer is pretty universally mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. Well, he's the one in the bet that is rooting for them to succeed, I think. Or, I mean, well, rooting, thinks that you can redeem someone. He's betting that they can, quote unquote, redeem. Right. And he has the line, mother always said you were greedy, which you can tell he means that as an insult. And then Mortimer, played by Don Amici, says she meant it as a compliment. (laughs) Uh, So we see that Randolph is a bit of an oddball in his family. He's not quite as money obsessed Mm -hmm. as the rest of them. And this film was kind of a a little bit of a second jumpstart for Don Amici. He hadn't been in a film since 1970 called Suppose They Gave a War and Nobody Came. And he had been doing some television guest appearances, but this movie really jump-started, well, like re-jump-started um, his career, and he returned to theatrical films, including he got the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor uh, for Cocoon. I was going to say, yeah, I, I associate him most with Cocoon. Yeah. Yes. So that's kind of exciting. <laughs> that's the one of the good things we can hang our hat on this movie. We'll talk about in a little bit some of the uh, more troubling things. Right. Yeah, uh, We have a lot under the couldn't be made today category. We do. In 2010, as part of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act, which was to regulate the financial markets, a rule was included which barred anyone from using secret inside information to corner markets, similar to what the Duke brothers tried to do in this movie. And since the movie inspired this rule, it has since become known as the Eddie Murphy rule. Well, good for Eddie. I know. I I would consider that a feather in my cap if 
Right. Uh, you know, a, an act was made and named after, if, if it was a good reason, like if, if I was the reason they had to create the rule to prevent right. other people from doing things wrong, that wouldn't be right. so cool. But <laughs> And I would say, anybody who believes that that had any effect on insider trading, send me your uh, credit card and PIN number. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my last little bit of trivia, and then you can kick us off with your pickup line, is according to John Landis, Jamie Lee Curtis was a hard sell for Paramount, he told this story. Be- they didn't believe that she could carry a, or, you know, be in a film and be kind of in this top billing because all she had done previous was horror films. And Landis kind of said, nope, I want her, you know, make it so she's the actress for me. So she credits John Landis for her career because after all of the horror films, she did this and then she got the string of other hits in the 80s. And then, you know, I mean, she she has a huge career right now. So she credits John Landis for kind of helping her out of that trope of right. horror films. This is like a year or two before A Fish Called Wanda, I think. That was a comedic role. Yes. And John Cleese saw her in this and... Uh, appreciated her comic timing and wrote the part for her in A Fish Called Wanda. So that's Mm -hmm. further evidence of Landis Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. a huge Mm -hmm. part. Okay, I have a bit of trivia for when we get to Can't Be Made Today, but I think you should kick us off and we'll start talking about other aspects of filmmaking in this film, Trading Places. Your breakfast, sir, which is Coleman, Winthorpe's butler, doesn't really... It doesn't really explain. I mean, it's a definitely a show of. I guess you could say your breakfast sir says that it's a domestic servant giving you stuff. So maybe, but I'd say this doesn't support my my theory as well. Yes, and kind of as a show that that butler or house staff, um, the Dukes employed. It appeared mostly um, African Americans as oh. their. House staff? Yeah, there. I think Coleman is the only non-black house staff we see in this film. Yeah. So the Dukes definitely have an opinion, and that is no that they make that known of how they feel. Right. Without <laughs> jumping too far ahead, my question is: When I watched it this time, how realistic that was for the mid eighties. Right. In right. New York city. Yeah. I, I, I don't know mm-hmm. is, is my question. Now my guess is if there are still people who have domestic help in, uh, in the United States, whether it be Manhattan or Philly or what have you, my guess is they would be immigrants from other countries, perhaps from Africa, but I would think, you know, Philippines and other places in Asia perhaps. So, it, it, when I first saw the film, it didn't it didn't strike me. Right. So maybe that was you know still realistic at the time. Yeah, it's hard to say since neither one of us grew up in New York, and and I didn't I, grow up with domestic. Help. I was just yeah, <laughs> and I personally grew up in a state where we just didn't have a lot of diversity. So it, I think it's difficult for us to kind of say if that was, but I it feels accurate. You know, New York is a very diverse culture. You probably definitely had the lower class. You know, I mean, this has been history, right? The lower classes are the servers and house staff for the upper class. And yeah, yeah. Like I said, um, I I grew up in an area with more of a melting pot. 
And like, uh, you know, you, but you, yeah, you or nobody you knew had domestic help. So nope, how would you zilch, know? Yeah. So I had no. All right, let's move on since we don't know what we're talking about. About that. <laughs> well, if we stop talking when we don't know what we're talking about, the podcast is going to be really short. <laughs> All right. So the only thing I have for cinematography is when they're explaining to Billy Ray about the commodities and how they work and they've dumbed it to me. They were trying to like dumb it down and probably maybe for the audience also, because this is before the big short before <laughs> maybe too many people knew how Wall Street worked. But they have basically breakfast in front of him and they have bacon and they have eggs and they have toast which represents wheat and then they have orange juice which represents the orange um prices and everything and they're breaking them down and explaining them and they kind of come to a point where they're like see so do you understand and eddie breaks the fourth wall and looks straight into the camera and i was i wrote in my notes not sure why like what was that moment and was it what do you think that why did why did he break the fourth wall there i think it was supposed to be a nod to the audience, like, can you believe these guys are asking that? But I don't know. It it, it It's kind of odd. Maybe just because the whole concept back then, I just don't feel, I mean, once again, I was a kid, so I didn't know how the stock market worked. But I feel like if I ask grownups around me, I don't know if they could have really fully explained, especially this whole idea of like the speculation. Because that's kind of what they were doing, although they were cheating and getting inside information. Right. I, I mean, I think the one sentence summary of how the stock market works is rich people get richer. <laughs> and they were giving a slight, the next, you know, in your pyramid style of journalism, the next level down of detail. But it was still very hand wavy. But for, this is a comedy, right? right. So, I, so I let's think not get lost in the weeds. That's about as much as they as much time as they could spend in the film that's trying really to point. establish what was going on. Now, I, I did make a note while watching it to look up, and I didn't. Sorry, listeners. Whether or not frozen orange juice concentrate is actually something <laughs> that they that they speculate on. But I did notice that when they were doing that explanation, they shot both Randolph and Mortimer from below, giving them a very authoritative look. And there's a painting of... One of the founding fathers, Washington or Jefferson or somebody. It'd be better think, if it was Hamilton. I think it in was. In the background. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I remember that. I agree. I think the the camera angle, that's good that you noted that. Because I think that definitely speaks to, I think, from them from above, not only we're supposed to think of them as authorities, but also we feel diminutive to them like Billy Ray. Cause I believe he was sitting in that. Scene. Yeah. They had him sitting down in front of the breakfast items. Yeah. I think under writing, I have at one of the first scenes we meet Dan Aykroyd's character and he's brought breakfast in bed. He has a barber chair in his apartment and his Butler, I assume, or his, what do they call it? A, a manservant or whatever. Anyway, is giving him a custom shave in that chair. His clothes are picked out for him. We're very much learning about his character and that he pretty much doesn't have to do any household tasks. He just wakes up and kind of is is handled. Right. And I am curious to what degree that is realistic, right? Because I would hate that, all that. Like, get out of my way. Just let me get ready. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I I can't even imagine someone putting my socks on for me. I mean, that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> right. But 
I, I just wonder how much time that that person would actually have to devote to keeping that amount of money, right? Because as we've talked about before, when you have that level of wealth, you you attract people who would like to separate you from that wealth. Mm-hmm. So my, I just, I'm very curious. We, we see it as a life of luxury, but there could be social obligations and other things. It might be a very busy life, not actually waking up whenever you want and getting a custom shave. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. The first interaction between Lewis and Billy Ray, uh, he runs into Duke and Duke. The two run from the police. It's kind of a very silly chase because they're kind of running around. I believe the Duke brothers or there's kind of this a little bit of a. Almost a Benny Hill style to that. Yes. And I just thought that interaction was very like Billy Ray is wrongly accused for a whole list of crimes that almost just seem completely trumped up, which I'm sure, you know, we've heard about nefarious police departments kind of. It just seemed like he he was panhandling and I believe he accidentally ran his little cart into one of their legs. But it was like, you know, larceny and and um, what's it called when you like when you hit somebody assault and battery. Yeah, like it was assault charges and all this right. laundry list. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, he just kind of had a an unfortunate run and just let the guy go on. But, you know, and that's where the idea of the bet ensuing. I felt very bad for Coleman who makes tableside crepe Suzette. And then, and it's quite an involved process. It's a decent sized scene. And I'm just the whole time watching him make these crepes. And then Lewis just goes, Oh no, we're not interested. And it shows him throwing him in the trash and, that hurt my heart. Yeah, yeah. I, first of all, I, I wondered why he wouldn't eat them himself. Now, right. I have uh, known several people who worked in the food service industry, and they assure me that wait staff does eat the the food that is not not consumed. Well, I've even heard stories from wait staff who like a good portion of a steak is still right. on the plate. Yeah. And yeah, you cut off the slobbery part and you have yourself you a steak. Enjoy the rest of the steak. Yeah, so. so. But I also think of the actor because you could tell he actually had cooked that crepe Suzette. He had to learn that skill and perform it and then dump his handiwork in the trash can. Yes, exactly. So the Duke brothers offer Billy Ray a program for because they have the bet and then a program for culturally disadvantaged people. And I love it. Billy Ray leans forward to ask the black driver the chauffeur what's going on is this legit what's happening (laughs) right you know if he had the verbiage am i being punked (laughs) so anyway the rest of the movie ensues you guys know how it goes do you have how about this do you have any other things in under the cinematography or writing category that i didn't hit on well in, in case our our listeners were not familiar with this film it is a comedy made in the 80s, so that means that there must be at least one scene of gratuitous boobs. However, Landis was not satisfied. He's an overachiever. There were two scenes of gratuitous boobs. The cinematography was pretty straightforward. The only real uh, note that I have a- outrageous is there's an aerial shot of a sailboat at the end of the film, and this is before drones, so they had to get their helicopter out. Right. 
So speaking of the topless scene, Jamie Lee Curtis told People Magazine in March of 2022 that she knew she looked good and she entered the scene fully aware of what was, you know, entailed in the scene. But having done it was quite a source of much embarrassment for her afterwards. She said that she was 21 years old, much like Eddie, and the part required her character Ophelia to take her dress off. Did she like doing it? No. Did she feel embarrassed that she was doing it? Yes. Did she look okay? She said yes. Did she know... Blow hard self-interview. Yeah, I, I heard that. <laughs> Did she know that what she was doing? Yeah. Did she like it? No. And was she doing it so, so that she could have a job? And she said yes. And it added... And she added later that it did that she did perform nude in a couple of other films. And when asked if she would do it again, she said it's the last thing in the world she would do now. So I think, unfortunately, like a lot of actors, you do feel early in your career like that is something that is expected or that you don't have the quote unquote right to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, also, it's a way to compete for a role, to be quite honest, when you don't have as big a body of work, you're trying to find anything that will stand you apart from the crowd, perhaps. I'm not sure that that nudity was required for the story. Uh, Yeah, she did look fantastic. So from that perspective of the business of show, maybe putting butts in seats, that was good for some word of mouth, no pun intended. But yeah, it's just like I said, it's an 80s film, it's gratuitous boobs. I don't mind seeing her naked, but I don't know if we needed to, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I think as far as sets go, I thought it was a good touch that the, here we are in 83, like we keep mentioning, and the photo of Ronald Reagan on the Duke's desk in their office was, I think they would have been a big fan of Um, Yeah, so... um, there's at one point Beeks, played by the, the actor who was the vice principal in Breakfast Club, for those following along. Right. He's reading a G. Gordon Liddy book. There's also a, a bunch of what I, I call like disapproving founding fathers in the Heritage Club. And I, I don't think it's exactly the same, but Winthorpe's desk reminded me of the famous desk in the White House that JFK Jr. was oh, playing under. Yeah. So I'm sure it was intended at least, if not a, a copy, to, to evoke that sense of old money. Yeah, I think you're totally right. In the opening titles, it's a very famous, or I should say a recognizable tune. We both were like... I know I've heard this song before. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and I and as we were talking when the movie was opening, I remember, you know, just feeling like I feel like this tune evokes that that air of the upper crust of the, you know, one percent and along with images of the city. And it would bounce between images of poverty and wealth. So it would show like you know, the Plaza Hotel, and then you would see, you know, like Queens or something, and it would bounce back and forth. And we tried to um, use a famous uh, song listing app that failed us. And so luckily in the trivia, it is The Marriage of Figaro by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. As Lewis is leaving the building, he is whistling it. He's whistling the beginning of the aria from the opera. And in that aria, Figaro declares that he plans to turn the tables on his master, just as Lewis and Billy Ray eventually did to outwit the Duke brothers. So, I mean, I love the layers of filmmaking when just kind of 
in a way you could just say, oh, I just put in some classical music <laughs> there, yeah. but they're so intentional on, no, let me find the one that, that mimics the storyline of this film. That's actually a really good note. I didn't know about the marriage of Figaro. I will say without mentioning the name of this app, that it is shameful that they couldn't recognize this song because it's one of easily the 10 top 10 classical music pieces recognizable by the layperson. There, Absolutely. Like, there's no reason they shouldn't have been able to recognize it. Yeah. When you mentioned that as well, obviously they choose those classical music songs because they're outside copyright. They're easier to, to license. Right. But it also, it, it has the same era of wealth. Right. And that's a good question. I have, why do we who are not super wealthy associate classical music with super wealthy people, right? Uh, perhaps they like to listen to Eminem. We don't know. I don't know why that is. Is it like a, a sense of the classics? Like they have the, the, the leather bound books in their library, you know, like, oh, they don't actually read all that stuff, but it's kind of the trappings. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. When we picked this film, I will just say I was picking it from my 12, 13 year old memory of yep. it. The idea of the low class getting one up on the upper class, it also fit within our theme for the month. And it wasn't until we watched this film that we realized, holy cow, there is a ton of just downright racist, horrible things in this film. So uh, we'll go through them um, <laughs> under our category of could not be made today or it would need a heavy rewrite if it was, because I think the spirit of you know, the little guy getting one up on the big powerful dudes is an inspiring storyline and theme, but we clearly don't condone a lot of what well, happens. Yeah, and, and, the uh, filmmaking storytelling aspect. This is a really, I think, interesting question because as we talked about, not just people of color, but also our gays also don't right. do so well in the slur department. Right. But is that realistic for 1984 in the United States and 1984 in wealthy people in the United States? I think definitely for wealthy people. So they uh, use... A couple of words that you probably shouldn't use, and they you use the one shouldn't. word you definitely should never use in your movie. And I think it's consistent with the character, though. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Mortimer, or w which one's the, the Don Amici character? Mortimer is Don Amici. Yeah, yeah. He is um, not a good person. So no. I believed that he would use that language. But then Eddie Murphy uses uh, uh, some slurs for gay people, and has a general, uh, I would say, kind of, a, he expresses a fear of gay folk that was, I think, realistic in that era, at least in, in terminology. Mm -hmm. I noticed it, uh, but it, I, I can't excuse the filmmakers because there was a credit for big black guy and even bigger black guy. Yeah. Like and. All actors, regardless of race, gender, orientation, they like to have a character named Kevin, not just random guy. So I don't see that there was any reason that it couldn't have been Kevin and Mark, right? 
That, Absolutely. Uh, or, or even prisoners, right? Prisoner number one, prisoner number two. Yeah. So I, I do feel like Landis perhaps had, had some, he was comfortable with describing people based on race and stuff. And again, at that era, maybe people didn't think it was quite as wrong, but I was surprised. I didn't remember this film being racist. No. And so, again, is that because I was a young person and I was just generally kind of clueless about things, a different era? I don't know, but I was stunned when we saw some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm still still in shock. Not only the language, but then when we saw Dan Aykroyd's character, Lewis, come in on the train and he's obviously he's in blackface. And it was like we both kind of, I think, had a like a, a you know, a, a physical <laughs> right. reaction. Like we recoiled like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Like I totally forgot this part. And then we realized that in the storyline, it's not even necessary. Right. Because Jamie Lee Curtis is portraying kind of your, I guess, stereotypical <laughs> Swedish girl. She's got the little Dutch girl outfit. She put her hair in braids. I think she's in later hosen. Yeah. And, and uh, Coleman comments like, if you're Swedish, why are you wearing German? German. Like, yes. So they're kind of making fun of the stupid like right. costume. Yes. But so Lewis could have been, he could have been another German guy, which would not have been a, as... Right. Wouldn't have been as... Well, he could have been an American guy. Right. Um, Right. He just needed to know Eddie. But they put Coleman into a priest and had him do the -the over-the-top Lucky Charms Irish accent and be drunk. So the Irish didn't get away uh, (laughs) free either in this one. Right? That's just it. And then, not to, to harp on this, but they have this bit where... Clarence speaks. The bad guy goes undercover as a gorilla, and the male gorilla has his way yes. with Mister Beaks. And the, to me, there was an undercurrent there uh, again of the fear of of the gays. And so there, it just there was a lot of it that felt to me very adolescent. Yeah, and maybe because I saw it when I was an adolescent, right? It, it just it landed, and I didn't notice, right? Yeah, no, that's a really good point that it had to have been not okay. It was not okay when, oh no, Al Jolson wore a blackface and the jazz singer in like the 20s and 30s. It it wasn't okay in 1993 when Ted Danson wore a blackface to his girlfriend Whoopi Goldberg's roast. Like, we knew it wasn't okay in 83, yeah, that that's the thing to me. When when Al Jolson did it, I I mean, I wasn't alive back then, so I can't comment. But I definitely think by eighty three we should have known better. Uh, yeah, I I think. Well, you brought up Danson, which was admittedly ten years later, but still, I think everyone was stunned. Yeah, I, I would argue it that was n- yeah. Even people like Ricky Gervais, who are known for incredibly edgy humor would have said, oh, that's just that's, that's not funny. Right. Like, let's not do that. So, and but in this film, I, I really, I struggle to see the, the, the reason for that, other than, like I said, I mean, I guess a certain style of comedy, adolescent boys maybe think it's funny. I don't know. Right. But it's just sad that there weren't enough people in the powerful positions saying, 
hey, that goes too far. This isn't okay. We need to reshoot that scene and make him from Italy or, you know, I mean, or anywhere. Or like you said, Dan Aykroyd's character could be an American. Oh, yeah. you, you put him, make him older, make right. him, you, you know, I mean, there's a ton of things of they things. could have done. Although, as I stop and think about it, the fact that he's a Rastafarian, well, maybe he should just been a stoner. Uh, that right, been more he, but he brand. could have been, like you said, and he could have been a surfer dude or something right, that was hippie. kind of a stoner. Yeah. Um, and then when I read in the trivia that at around an hour and 40 minutes into the film, Winthrop and Valentine arrive, which is Lewis and Billy Ray, they arrive to the World Trade Center and he's walking <laughs> in and he says, in this building, it's either kill or be killed. And this line has been removed from some television broadcasts after 2001 out of respect for the victims of the September 11th, 2000, 2001 terrorist attacks. And I was like, wait, they took out this line, but right. they didn't take, they don't take out like the scene in the train car with this egregious blackface or the N words that you talked about oh, and yeah. the F words. Like it's just. I cannot believe that that's the thing that we censor well, if we're going to choose. And this film doesn't have a reputation as being that edgy, which I would have thought, you know, it may have. So Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat, I think, is probably more known for being inappropriate than this film. And I would argue that it's not, right? So that's, to me, it was kind of odd that that neither one of us remembered this film as being, as being that bad. super outrageous. Yep. And look, I mean, you know, it, it's art and it's comedy. Like, it, it's hard for me to to say that Landis at that time couldn't do this film. I, you know, it, that's a weird position. But I, I certainly think it should have been extremely notorious, right? You would think. You would remember. Like, for example, we were talking the other night with the family and somebody had forgotten the Mickey Rooney character in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. And everyone else at the table were like, oh, no, 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 we know that scene. Right. And so, like you said, we're su- we were surprised by ourselves that we did not remember. Right. And yeah. sadly, that could be that at that time, A, we were children. Yeah. So I give us a little bit of a pass there. But we weren't as evolved as humans well, I mean, I feel like somebody should have been, though. Well, you know, it, it's like I said, I, I have a hard time judging people 40 years ago by current, you know, standards of what's what's appropriate. So perhaps at the time it, it wasn't considered that edgy. But I find it oh, odd that it on. wasn't, right? Yeah, I exactly. mean, just looking back on it, I'm like, how could this have not been a talking point? Like, oh, I can't believe how, how edgy this was, how much race stuff was in yeah, there, right? And really I would think the black community at the time, you know, maybe they I'm were saying sure like, they had a problem with it. Yeah, you would think they would look at this and say, but... And much like Jamie Lee not being comfortable to say like, hey, does she have to be topless? My first thought was, well, was Eddie okay with it? And then when I found out he was 21, I thought, well, that's unfair to put it on him. And to say right, he's like, just well, to if probably he signed off on movies. it, but he wasn't in the power position in this movie. He was grateful to have a job and probably not one to... Well, again... If he had said, 
I have a problem with some of these parts of the script. They'd say, thank you very much, Mr. Murphy. We'll, we'll let you know. Right. We're going to go right. call Richard Pryor. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, exactly. just to be honest. No, that, I know. That's I agree with what you. would have happened. And, and, you know, he has said in the past, you know, they're just movies. And, I mean, he made the clumps, so he's not uh, Orson Welles. But, so like I said, it's real hard for me to say you can't make a comedy that's edgy, but... Wow, this is I was way stunned. Too much. Yeah, way too much. yeah, this was uh, real. It, it was is difficult to watch with our current sensibilities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All righty. Was there any head trauma in this film? There, there, there was a fair amount of head trauma. Mortimer beats Billy Ray about the head and shoulders while Billy Ray's begging as part of his uh, he got his little knee cart thing. Then Billy Ray runs into Winthorpe and knocks him down. Clarence Beeks throws a passerby down on the sidewalk. Nice guy. He then pistol whips the gorilla, which is really Jim Belushi in costume. And then the real gorilla hammer fists Clarence Beeks. So a decent amount of head trauma. Yeah. Boink. How about a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Uh, yes. Uh, Winthorpe and Ophelia kiss at the train station. Oh, true love. True love. And um, we mentioned a show first. Was there a driving review? Well, there's basically three rich people cars, right? So we see that Winthorpe, played by Dan Aykroyd, drives a black Mercedes-Benz 600 four-door sedan. And so that says that it's it's functional wealth, right? Because it's a relatively new vehicle. Mercedes is a decent maker. But the, the Duke brothers, they have a black 68 Rolls-Royce Phantom. And so not only is it older, but it's substantially less functional. It's really just a a rolling living room because they're rich guys and they don't have to worry about that. And then Penelope has a 76 Cadillac Fleetwood limousine. So that shows that she's got some money, but she's not really playing quite at that level. So again, they inform us about the characters with their choice of ride. Right. And those Duke brothers, they had a computer in the car that was tracking the stock prices. How realistic was that? I think not in the slightest. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I don't think in 1983 we had this ability. We barely had mobile phone technology. We certainly did not have Wi-Fi or satellite technology. Yes. Thank you. All right. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All righty. This film, like I said, came out in 1983, had a budget of $15 million dollars. Domestically, it made $90 million, so that it was a huge hit. Adjusted for today, that would be like a film making $302.2 million. It got a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics love this movie. They gave it a high B at 88%, and audiences followed suit at 85%. So I think people have memories of this film as being funny and like i said i think that the quality of the one upsmanship or the you know kind of getting one over on the people in power is what makes this because when people when i when people saw that we were talking about it they got really excited you know so i think it has fond memories for those of us who maybe watched it that first time in 1983 It's just under two hours at an hour and 56 minutes. It is rated R. It is a comedy. It did win a couple of awards. Jamie Lee Curtis won the BAFTA for Best Supporting Actress. And Eddie Murphy won an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor. So that is ironic that even at the time... 
I would think the NAACP would have had a problem with this scene, but definitely wanted to give one of their own, you know, a nod to say you did well. You were very funny in this film. Especially at 21. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Denholm Elliott won the BAFTA. I can't remember who that was. He's Coleman, the the butler. I liked his work. And Giancarlo Esposito is in this. Yes. Yes, we noticed. Um, The filming locations for this movie were uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City. And then at the very end, we get a shot from St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. You still have time to put in a guess for what you think the theme of this month is. You will find the email in the show notes. It's Christy at Dodge Media Productions with an S dot com. And never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.